Wednesday night. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. And it's, it's, it's exciting to, to get with you guys and just get around the Word of God. It's always humbling, you know, to, to, to you know, come and just be a part of what the Lord is doing. And God's Word, I, I, I feel like um, I know less than I've ever known. You ever feel like that? You like know less than you've ever known. God is infinite. God is infinite, isn't he? So therefore, we will, we will never, we will always be children. We'll never like arrive anywhere. I've kind of convinced Jesus sort of does this. He'll, he like comes to where we are, then he moves a little bit in front of us and he sort of beckons us, you know, come, come. And then, and then we get, get there and then he moves out a little bit, you know, to come, come a little further. And there's no end because he's infinite. So the only way we gain any perspective is look through the rearview mirror and see how far we've come. That's how we know we're growing in him. But we never get to the end. And you get to the place in your life where you realize that, Lord, I don't know, I don't know anything. But after I got saved, I knew everything. How many was like that after you got, after you got born again? Man, you got a few answers, you got a few little truths, and man, you knew it all. You were ready to like go out. You was ready to argue with every Baptist or Catholic or Methodist, or you were just you had your you had your few little promises. And man, I was I was doing that all the time. Now, but I don't know, I don't know anything. I found myself in the last five years completely rethinking church as I have understood it for the previous twenty five years. Like everything that we've, you know, we just kind of do and we just roll with. You begin thinking, man, is this, is this, is this really how it, how it's supposed to be? And then you start like the Holy Spirit starts showing you the Bible and you start reading things and you start realizing, oh my gosh, Lord, I, I think, I think I missed some things along the way. Do you ever feel like that? I think I, I think I missed some things. I wasn't like told some things. I didn't learn some things. I, I got a lot of traditions of man and a lot of things like that, but I didn't. Man, there's so much that, there's so much more that God wants to teach us inside of his word because we find ourselves that if you grew up in an American culture like I did in American church, we were probably not discipled very well. Now, maybe you're in the room and you were discipled perfectly. You had a group of believers, you had, a, you, had a, you had kind of a Paul in your life, and you had a Barnabas in your life, and you had a Timothy in your life, and you were just properly discipled, but I, I really didn't have that experience. Therefore, a lot of things that I learned along the way, I didn't either learn them right, or I only had kind of a partial truth, and what happens is, is we get born into the kingdom of God with what I call with um, spiritual birth defects. We are, we are born again, but we come in missing some things. And man, sometimes we got to go back and we got to like fix some stuff inside our heart, things that we just automatically believe that aren't necessarily truth. Not always wrong, but not rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because I have found myself having to relearn so many things about the Lord and, and, and how we grow. And tonight, we're going we're gonna to talk about a, a really important question that, that seems so simple, but when not answered rightly, creates all kinds of spiritual birth defects in the kingdom of God, how we view God and, and, and how we view ourselves. It is a simple question, who am I? Who am I? 
Now, we can look in the mirror and you could probably give your name, and, but I mean, who we really are. Now, you recall one week ago, I laid out kind of for us just a, just a way how we process and become fully devoted followers of Jesus, that we have to gain something called information. We gain it from the, the, from the Bible. We gain it from preaching, from learning. We get information, but it can't just stay as information. It has to become something else. Remember what it's called? It has to become revelation. So we're, we're getting lots of information. And many of us who've been around church for a long time, we have a lot of information. Part of the problem is it hasn't converted itself to revelation yet. Because it's only when it becomes revelation that transformation can really happen. So what's the mechanism, if you remember, how do we convert information to revelation? What do you have to do? It requires faith. Remember? Faith. You have to believe it. It's not enough just to know it, but you got to believe what you hear. Many of us have a lot of information we can quote a lot of scripture, but we really don't believe what we think we believe because we're not living in the transformation of that. So it causes us to go back and, Lord, do I, do I, really, do I really believe what you say about who I am? I can, like I said, I can, I can win Bible trivial pursuit, but is it, is it really affecting my life? And we need a revelation on who we are. It's possible, because I live this, it's, it's possible to live a Christian life, to be involved in church actively, going on mission trips, serving Jesus, praying, speaking in tongues, not backsliding. I mean, you can get every box checked, but still be missing some really important revelation about who we are in God. The enemy does not want you to know who you are. The devil wants to keep that from you. He wants to keep us from accessing the revelation of who it means, right? Who we are and what it means to be a Christian. So God showed me this about, um, I'll tell you the story. It's just, it was really fascinating. This was about three months, uh, six months ago. I was visiting somebody in the hospital you do that when you're in ministry, you spend a lot of time in hospitals. So I'm talking to the lady, um, she's in bed, and we're kind of visiting, and I noticed an, an older man was kind of sitting in a chair over by the window of this hospital room. I didn't, I didn't know him, he was just kind of sitting there. He looked to be, you know, maybe 70-ish, you know, sitting there, kind of uh, white beard. So I didn't even pay, any, pay much attention to him. So I'm talking to the lady, and then, and then she introduces me to this man sitting over there. So I walk over and we, um, we introduce ourselves, and he just kind of pops right up and, you know, really kind of a spry guy for seven years old. Eyes were, you know, eyes were blue and just, we just start having this conversation. Super nice. And we, get, we get, begin talking about the Lord. And, um, and, and over the course of the conversation, he begins to tell me about his, um, his grandfather. Now, in the course of the conversation about his grandfather, he was telling me that his grandfather was in the Civil War. So that's pretty cool in the Civil War. So we're like talking a little bit more. And then I'm, then I'm like, like doing the math in my head. Oh, Civil, Civil War. So I said, so I remember, so you mean, you mean just for clarification, you mean like your great-grandfather or your great-great-grandfather? Hey, no, no, it was my grandfather. And I said, 
how old are you? He said, I am 102. So I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, you're like thinking, oh my goodness. Because I would have guessed maybe 72. 102. No cane. No glasses. I mean, just popped right up without, I mean, just no apparent arthritis. Um, mentally very, very sharp. And the moment he said he was 102, I had met some 102-year-olds before, but it's typically in the nursing home and they weren't very coherent. But he was just, and I looked at him and I said, I, I really don't even know what to say. I don't know what to say, but uh, how, <laughs> you know, how? He was talking about, you know, what he did when he was in his 30s and whatever, back in the 19. 20s and 30s, medium hot in the gun. I said, said you've got to be kidding, man. You've got to be kidding. You know, and, and, and I said, so what is the very sweet, so humble, I said, so, so what's the, so, so how, how are you 102 and you're standing here talking to me like this? He said, he said oh, uh, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Just so kind of, I said, yeah, I know that verse. But I realized real quick that I must not have no revelation on that verse. My outward body's wasting away, but my inner man's being renewed every day. I'm being changed from glory to glory to glory. And he looks at me with these like, I mean, these blue eyes. And he's like, yeah, he said, I really don't think I have to die. Now, I want you to know that really ran against my theological grain. I'm like, well. Now, he was 30 years old in saying that. I would have pushed back. He was 102 saying that. And didn't look a day older than 70. Now, he didn't mean he didn't have to literally die, but he meant that the life that he has here, he's living in the power of Jesus. And when it comes time to go, it'll be like, you know, Moses on the mountain, he just goes. Eyes were never dimmed. His energy was never abated. He just was taken. So anyway, I say all that to say this. Sometimes when you see things like that, you're like, Lord, there is so much more to knowing you and so much more to understanding who I am in you than I have right now. Clearly, there's revelation going here that I'm not reaping the benefit of. Now, what that means for us, for you and me, is this. This has nothing to do with us getting to heaven or not. It has nothing to do with our name written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. But what it does mean is the quality of life that we can have here for the moment we're a vapor. And how we can live here and how we can access this kind of revelation because it's very practical, isn't it? And it, and, it, and it comes when we begin to realize who we are and say, God, who, who, who am I? What, what is this thing, this thing going on inside of me that's changing me from glory to glory to glory? And that's what's happening in me is affecting my natural body. I'm not saying this is going to get to heaven, but I'm saying this is being affected by the glory that's inside me at some level. I understand that yeah, this is going to return to the earth. I get that. I'm going to get a brand new body one day. But, it's, but there's something going on that can increase and magnify that's contingent on the level of revelation that I have about who I am in Jesus. Does that make sense? And I don't think we have to get weird and strange on that, but it clearly tells me, Lord, there's more to this than I realize, and there's more you are inviting us into as sons and daughters than I think we are accessing. And I believe we will get to glory one day, and God, we're going to be so happy to get there, but we're going to have this idea, oh man, I, I really could have lived, <laughs> I really missed out on quite a bit based on what was provided for us 
in God's, in God's word. So I want you to think of it like this. Identity, once you begin to get revelation in on identity, it's going to produce greater revelation on intimacy, the intimacy we can have with God. And then once you get a hold of some more intimacy, you begin to access your inheritance in Jesus, which is going to produce your destiny. So identity will lead us into greater intimacy. Intimacy will grant us more of our inheritance in Christ, and then we get to experience a greater dimension of the destiny we can have as sons and daughters. You get it? Identity, intimacy, inheritance, destiny. But typically, we invert the whole thing, and we ask more questions about what's our destiny what does God want me to do? And we spend an, an inordinate amount of time or an inappropriate amount of time focusing on, Lord, what do you want me to do? And we spend very little time thinking about who I really am in Jesus. And so there's where we begin to miss out on the revelation that God wants to give us because we're not really seeking revelation in this area. We're focusing on, God, what do you want me to do? And I will do it. I like to say it this way, all of us want to do God's will, but the truth is, is that we actually are God's will. We actually are God's will. We all want to do God's will because I realize I didn't just make you to get something done. I made you for, for my pleasure. And it begins to get answered in the question of, Lord, who, who am I? Who are we as sons and daughters? And the more revelation we get, the greater intimacy we get to experience through that. And it begins to change everything about us. And then the destiny part becomes the byproduct. And the product is knowing him. And what we do is the byproduct. I think I shared this the other week. God called Abram out of the land of Ur. You remember the story, right? God goes to Abram. I'm calling you out of the land of Ur. This is before Abram goes through his name change to Abraham. He says, Abram, I'm going to call you out of this land, right? I'm calling you away from your father and your mother, everything familiar to you. I'm taking you to a new land that I will show you, a new land that I will show you. We typically get fixated on, oh, where are we going, God? Let's go to this new land, this new place. What do you want me to do there? Whatever that is, right? Oh, this new land, maybe it's a new job, or maybe it's a husband, or maybe it's a wife, or whatever it is, and we miss the whole point of the story, I believe. The point of the story was not so much about the land where God was taking Abram to. The point was when God said, to a land, I will show you. So the point is not so much about the land. The point is, I will show you. It's not about where we're going, but it's about who we're going with. You see, it's not so much about where we're going, but who we're going with, and it becomes all about the who. So you see what can happen, because we only have so much bandwidth. There's only 24 hours in a day. There's only so much we can, like, sort of take in. So if, if, if a majority of my Christian life, if, if 80% of it is primarily focused on where we're going and what I'm supposed to be doing, it's not leaving much time for me to center in on God, who, who am I? Who is this one who is showing me where we're going? Because at the end of the day, God could give any one of us a Ram McNally or a GPS coordinate and just say, go and find it. He could have told Abram, hey, just, you know, go here five miles, take a left at the oak tree and right at the donkey and cross this and 
And he, he, he could have given that, but God chose not to do that. He said, no, I'm taking you a place where I am going to show you. Because the point was not where we're going. The point is I'm the one going to be showing you where we're going. And, and, and those things are all answered, and we ask the question of who am I? So let's just pray. And we'll, what I want to do is I want to I just share for maybe 35 minutes uh, or less. And then I want to do a, a little time of questions and answers. Because as you're kind of thinking about these things, as, as God begins to um, put things on, on your heart, we don't, we don't have a little time of um, Q&A. And that doesn't mean I'm going to answer every question. That means if you have a question, somebody here can answer it. Uh, maybe I have a question I'll ask you. We'll see how that goes. Father, we love you. Thank you tonight. Help us, Jesus. Help us. Help us, God. I, Lord, every time I approach this subject, I feel so inadequate. I feel like a, like a preschooler on these things, Lord. Father, because I realize there's so much more. Lord, when I stood across from that 102-year-old man, I realized even in a, even in a moment like that, Lord, there's so much more that you're inviting us into. That if we would just ask and, and seek and knock. So help us, Lord. Put a, put a gift of hunger inside of us. Not to accept the status quo of where we are. But Lord, something that would cause us to have a pioneer spirit with you. A hunger and a thirst and a desire to know you above all else. That Lord, you would teach us your ways so that we might know you. Not that we can just repeat your ways. The point is that we might know you, Lord, above all else. So we love you and thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump in and ask about who we are, let's talk quickly real quick about who we were. Because it's hard to understand who we are unless we really understand who, who we were. In other words, the good news doesn't make a lot of sense unless we understand the bad news. The good news doesn't make much sense unless we tell people the bad news. Part of the difficulty is why people are not very receptive to the gospel today is because we haven't told people why they need the gospel. Because we're like afraid of certain subjects. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to, well, maybe there's not really a hell. And so that's a little bit offensive. We don't want to, you know, and I mean, and that's, that is the culture and age that we live in. And a large quantity of the church has adopted this idea, well, let's just not, let's just not tell them the bad news yet. Let's just, let's just get them, let's just get them the good news, and then we tell them what the bad news later. And that's really not how this is done, is it? Because there's no way to step into the good news without a word called repentance. Jesus will meet us where we are. He will meet us in our mess, but there's no way to step in to him without repenting of the old you to step into the new you. And we don't like the word repentance very much. So when we talk about who we were, and you know, most of us understand that, but we kind of got to get it in our mind what's going on here. So we know Adam and Eve, before the fall, they were made perfect. Very simply, what does it mean to be perfect? That all their needs were met in God. That God was, was the need meter. All their needs were met inside of God. They were perfect. They were made perfect in a perfect place. And we're not going to unpack all this because most of us know the story because something happened. What happened? We call it the fall. And sin came in. 
They begin to doubt. They begin to question. They begin to think about, oh, God is withholding something from me because they were deceived by the enemy. And as a result of that sin, they were separated from God. That perfect place and how they felt all of a sudden these things called shame and guilt and and fear began to enter into the equation. And we find out one of the first things that he did was what? He hid himself from God. And what did God do? He said, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Do you think God knew where Adam was? So what was the benefit? I mean, who's, who did he ask that question for? He, Adam. He asked it on behalf of Adam because Adam needed to know where he was. Adam needed to know where he was. God knew where he was, but Adam needed to realize where he was first. Do you realize if you were lost in the woods and you had no idea where you were, somebody dropped you in the middle of a like 5,000 acre woods and, and, and all you had was a cell phone and, um, and I was like a long way away and you were able to call me and you said, hey, I'm lost. Can you help me get out? Now, let's just say there's no GPS on the phone. This is like flip phones. All right. And I said, okay, where are you? I don't know, but I'm lost. Can you help me? Do you realize if you can't tell me where you are, there's no possible way for me to help you? You got to know where you are in order for anybody to help you. Does that make sense? In other words, you can know you're lost and you're walking. I don't know where I'm at. I mean, all we can do is have a nice phone conversation until the battery goes dead. Because I can't help you unless you can tell me where you are. That's why it's important that we give people the bad news. God calls out to Adam. Adam is hiding. He's afraid. He's naked. He's understanding now that there's shame and guilt and fear that's now in place. And here's the thing. They still had the same needs they, they always had. But the difference now is God is no longer the need meter. They figured out some way else to get their needs met. It's no longer God. So sin then becomes the empowering force in their thoughts or actions. Now the needs that were once met in God are now being met by their own selves or in each other. You see? So ultimately, one can define sin in one way, it separates us from God. That's a nice theological term, but what it ultimately means is that we are about meeting our needs in other ways than God. That's ultimately what sin does to us. It causes us to get our needs met in somebody else other than God. And a beautiful description in Ephesians chapter 2 says this. This describes who we were. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Remember, this is all of us. All of us once lived exactly like this, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So before you were born again, and before I was born again, this is exactly what I was doing. I was carrying out the passions in my own heart, in my own body, in my mind, in my own way. I'm going to get those needs met in anything and anyone other than God. 
That's what it means to be a sinner. So that people like, you know, people like look at the news and they say, I can't believe so-and-so's doing that. I can't believe that they're sinners. They have no choice but to do this very thing. They're, they're controlled by the spirit of darkness. To be a sinner is by nature to do these things. They were born into sin. They were born into sin. Well, that's not very fair. Well, I, I'm, I'm not the arbiter of fairness. God is the ultimate fair one. Ever like told your kids, that's, and the kids said, Mom, that's not fair. I said, like, life's not fair. Right. Uh, it may not be fair to you, but we know God is ultimately just. Romans 5 and 6 teaches us that, 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 that Adam and Eve in the garden, they sinned. And when they sinned, it created a nasty genetic mutation that would spread to all of mankind. That when David would say in Psalm 51, in sin, my mother conceived me, that he was not trying to say his mom was a harlot. He just had revelation on the reality. The moment I became a human being is when I became a sinner. Not when I was born, not when I committed my first act of rebellion we were born sin it was the terminal condition that separated us from god we are born this way and birth determines identity so we talk about birth think about that birth determines identity that's why i can have my dad stand up and people will say well you look a little bit like your dad well that's because he's my dad i carry the same some of the same genetic material that he carries and i find out the older i get the younger he, sent, he, he tends to look, and we go to a restaurant, and then we, people mistake us for brothers. <laughs> he is incredibly flattered. I am, like, mortified. <laughs> said, you've got to be kidding. We're brothers. So that's what, so birth determines identity. That is, that is who we were. Everybody get that? This is the ultimate bad news. I don't like this either very much, but the truth is that when a person dies apart from Jesus, they are eternally separated from God, and there's a place called hell where they go. If that's distasteful to you, it's distasteful to me too. But Jesus spent more time talking about hell than he did heaven. Because it's a very real place. It is separation from God. You say, well, that's not fair. No, it's reality. Because if any one of us had been in the Garden of Eden, we'd have made the same decision. We all sinned, and, and it spread to every single one of us. You say, well, I would have never done that. Yes, you do. You did it when you were three years old, and you continue to do it. Right? We are eternally separated from God because birth determines identity. And when you're born into sin at conception, that means your death warrant is signed. We already, we already chose to disobey God. People say, God doesn't send anybody to hell. You're right. God doesn't send anybody to hell. We signed up for it. We chose this. It's only by God's grace that he comes and rescues us from our poor choices. Isn't that true? Some people define sovereignty as God is in control. We hit this last week. Would everybody agree to say God is sovereign means God is in control? Everybody okay with that definition? It's not your question, I promise. It's okay. God's in control, but it's, an, but, it's a, but it's an incomplete definition. It's a two-dimensional definition of God's sovereignty, and God is multidimensional. An aspect of God's sovereignty is that God is free. God is truly free. What does it mean to have freedom? That means that God is, is, is completely unencumbered by any exterior or interior force. He can do anything he wants without any inhibition. There's none of us in this room that's free right now from the forces of gravity. 
We are all under the forces of gravity. Something's holding you to the ground right now. So that means you're not free. You're not free. You're not independent of gravity. And that's just one thing you're not free of. There's a lot of things that we're not free of, but God is absolutely free. His sovereignty means he is absolutely free. And that means when he made us, he made us in his image. So what he did, he gave us freedom. Like he is free. He gave us freedom. And then guess what happens when you get freedom? You get to make decisions on your own. And then that freedom means you have to reap the consequences of the decisions that you make within the freedom that he gave you. So is God still in control? Yes, God is. Could, could God keep certain things from happening? Yeah, or you know, how come God let that happen? You, we're not really getting the full question of what's happening here because God gave us freedom. And we get the opportunity to live in the consequences or the blessing or the curses of that freedom. Spend some time in Deuteronomy 28. Read about the blessings. Read about the curses. You'll find out if we hearken to the word of God and we obey him, we get to experience the blessings of God. But if we walk in disobedience, what happens? These things begin, all the curses and things begin to happen. It's not that God is up on his throne and he has this like shotgun and the bullets are labeled trials and sickness and suffering. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to shoot so-and-so today with cancer. I'm going to give so-and-so a cold. I'm gonna. That's, not what, that's not who God is. That's why we can't just say, well, God's sovereign. He's in control. He's permitting everything to happen. That's not what, that's not what sovereignty means. God gives us freedom. We live in the consequences of that freedom because we are like him. So God has come in the person of Jesus to restore back the way things were in the garden, rescuing us from this sin. So so everybody say this with me. Birth determines identity. Here's a central truth that I was saved for years and years and years before I had much revelation on this. Because we talk more about getting saved than we do about getting born again. The terminology born again is like super important. It's not just getting saved. If I'm only saying I'm getting saved, that implies, well, I got maybe saved or rescued from something, but it doesn't really tell me about the change that took place. And I did just get saved from something, but I got saved unto something. Many have come up in a church, and the only thing we've ever heard preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved. Or if you've you backslid and you need to like rededicate your life again. And the, and the whole context of our understanding of the Bible and ministry was more about just getting you saved. And nobody told us about, oh, we're not just getting saved from something, but we're getting saved unto something else. Because birth determines identity. So in John chapter 3, this, this incredible conversation where we all quote, thanks to Tim Tebow, we all know what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that who's ever believed in him should not perish, but have, but have everlasting life. And we love that verse, but like all other verses, it has verses around it. It's called context. Unfortunately, we live in a time where we like to just read like pretty cool scriptures. Now, if I took time and I wrote you a nice four-page letter and you got it in the mail and you opened it up and, oh, look at that, Dustin sent me a letter. Someone got a letter. Some of you have Blue's Clues, right? Someone got a letter. So open. So you like open. So you like open the letter and you don't read it. All you do is you skip down to the fourth paragraph in the third sentence and that's all you read. 
and then you put it back in the envelope and put it up. Do you think you're going to maybe miss something? If you get a letter, you're going to read the whole thing. But in a lot of our Bible studies, we're not always encouraged of reading the context. Yes, John 3.16 is great, but John 3.16 is, is in a passage and verses happen before it. So look at this, this uh, conversation. Nicodemus is basically asking Jesus, well, how am I going to, this doesn't make any sense. How can I, how can I be born again? Do I got to crawl back up in my mom and come back out again? He's having this hard conversation. Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he says, you must be born again. So that means at the moment we become a Christian, we become somebody brand new. Our identity changes. Birth determines identity. It's more than just getting saved from hell and you have a reservation in heaven. Jesus did way more than just that. Now, that's pretty profound. That's pretty awesome. That's great. I mean, if that's all we did, we could, we could shout forever. But it's way more than just that I got rescued from something. That my identity forever changed at the moment of salvation. And then we have the opportunity to be discipled into understanding who we are. And I'm convinced the greatest challenge that most of us have as Christians is we don't know who we are. We're walking around in a perpetual identity crisis. We have spiritual multiple personality disorder. And it manifests throughout the day because we're like, sometimes we're this and we're just, we're, just, we're just totally fragmented in this understanding of who we are in Jesus. So we can, we can talk about it theologically. We can give the right answers of what it means to be saved. But as I proposed to us last week, I, I don't think we have a lot of revelation on the information we have on this subject. I think we have a lot of information, but not a lot of depth of information because we spend an inordinate amount of time focusing on what God wants us to do and not focusing upon who we are in Him. Right? So if I serve you a plate of food and you got one little sliver of pork chop about that big and you got a, and you got a, a, um, a pile of collard greens that high, and I like collard greens, but I promise you, I love, who likes collard greens? That's a southern thing. Man, I tell you what. It's, just, it's like a gift from God. It's collard greens. But if that's all I ate, morning, noon, and night, I'm going to have some problems. I'm going to have some constitutional issues. And I don't mean legal issues either. I mean, I'm, I mean I'm going to have some serious issues. In other words, yes, we need to know these things, but, but, but what we're leaving out is, is the most important part is who we are. We received a new righteous nature. We're now part of the family of God. And we, and we find this in uh, Romans 8, another really familiar verse. I think it was um, Martin Luther that once said, if you can only have one book of the Bible, out of all the 66 books of the Bible, you can only pick one, which one would you pick? He would talk about, just give me the book of Romans. Because if you only pick one book of the Bible, Romans. If you haven't read the book of Romans lately, just sit down. Don't cherry pick verses around. Sit down and in one sitting, just read through the book of Romans. Get the flow of the letter. He's writing to people, read the whole letter, and you're going to get so much revelation. I promise you, if you go at it this way, you're going to get so much revelation in the book of Romans. 
So if that's the only book you could have, Romans 8, if, uh, if, if you could only pick one chapter in all the book of Romans, some would say Romans chapter 12. It's powerful stuff. So, so Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So at the moment of salvation, God creator now becomes God, my father. Did you ever hear the little song, you know, all God's children? You know, I mean, no, everybody's not God's children. Oh, everybody, God loves all the children of the world. And not, no, everybody's not God's children. We're all God's creation, but we're, all, we're not all his children. We are children of wrath. We're not, we're, we're not under his DNA line anymore. That's been cut off. When we're born again, then we get this beautiful thing because now we can call God Abba Father. The spirit of adoption has come to us. And you probably already know this. This is uh, preaching to the uh, choir. But adoption is really powerful imagery. Legally, adoption is powerful. Legally, in Hebraic culture, I can disown my biological children. But once I adopt a child, I can no longer disown them. In other words, so the, the, the idea of adoption is more powerful than biological. You know why? Because adoption means I got to pick you. I chose you. My natural kids, I really had nothing to do with that, right? I mean, I really, I didn't, I didn't get to like slice and dice and figure that out, right? We got what we got. Hallelujah. Praise God. We love them, but we got what we got. But when you adopt, you really is. I mean, you get to like choose and, and pick. It is a precious precious thing to be adopted. Maybe you're in the room and you were adopted. What a precious thing to have been adopted, handpicked, handchosen. It's not lesser. It's actually more, especially with, a, with, an, with an Hebraic understanding. So something dramatic happened. So we like to say it this way. If you've done that 23andMe or Ancestry.com and you know you mail in your epithelial cells and you get back all this information and you begin to put together your genealogy. Who anybody in the room has ever ever done that? Got into I mean it is, it is it is pretty cool to figure out you begin to trace and trace your lineage back and and now because of the DNA stuff they can really get pretty um, specific on all that. You can just go on this this wild chase and hey well, I, I got some news for I already know I already know. <laughs> I already know where you're going to trace your stuff back to. Shim, Ham, and Japheth. That's it. You know, that's, that, that's where you're going to land your plane. And then ultimately back to Noah, and then it's going to get back to Adam and Eve. So the end of, end of, the, end of the story. Hate to, hate to be the uh, uh, spoiler alert, because we all know where we came from. But the truth is, the moment we are born again, if you could say it this way, when you log on to Ancestry.com and you put in your name, you know how you had the little, like the little guy with the little lines that go up, and here's mom and dad, and grandma and grandpa, and you just keep going up. You know, there's, there's, there's only like one line, and it just says God the Father now. All, that, all that's gone. It's not applicable anymore. We're now sons and daughters. In other words, your whole identity has been irrevocably changed by the power of God. It's been completely changed. You are a brand new person. I am a brand new person. The power of sin is broken forever. The terminal condition of sin that you were born with is broken. It is crushed. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. And the work of the devil was that sin thing. That's what he deceived Adam and Eve into. Now we are brand new people. Now they say, well, yeah, yeah, I know that. I've, I've, been, I've been told that all my life in church. Yeah, 
But how much revelation do you have on that? See, I'm not trying to tell you information you don't have. I'm questioning the revelation you have on the information you've received. See the difference? I realize I'm not telling any of us information we don't know. What I am questioning is the revelation we have on the information that we have received. That's what we want to dial in on. I'm not telling you anything new, but I'm wondering, Lord, are we really pressing in to the revelation about who we are? Because the truth is now that sin is broken. Now, some of you are going to have a hard time with this, but it really means this, that we can choose not to sin now. We can actually choose not to sin now. Before, we were controlled by sin and had no choice in the matter because everything we did was driven by the passions and the sinfulness of the world. But now that the power of sin has been broken, we can actually choose not to sin anymore. And sometimes, sometimes that's a very hard thing for us to hear. So, wait a minute, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound right. Yeah, it's actually quite biblical because you're not who you were. You're a new person now. You're you're brand new and I'm, and I'm brand new. What does it mean then? So what happens is, think about this. So sin for the unbeliever is different than sin for the believer. We need to like put it in two different categories. Sin for an unbeliever means this. I am just getting all my needs met and everything and anyone but God. That's what that means. They have, they have no choice. Sin for the believer is a different animal because it means this, that we no longer have to walk after the ways and patterns and belief systems of the world anymore, but how we get our needs met. All the needs that we have, every desire that you have in your heart, every passion inside of you was good before it was bad. It was good before it was bad. Or was it God made Adam and Eve, all the passions, all the longings, everything inside of them was not evil. God actually put them there. But because sin entered, then they had no choice. They started meeting those needs in every way but him. Now he has made us something new. Now we now have the choice to have those needs met in God or in something else. And the needs are really simple. We all have needs for contentment, significance, and security. Maybe more, but I think you can boil them down to those three things. We all have these internal needs that drive us for contentment, significance, and security. We all want to get that. Adam and Eve, originally, all their contentment, all their significance, all their security was found in God. Then they began looking at, for that in each other or themselves, and it left them what? Empty and bankrupt. And here's the good news. God doesn't treat you based on your history. He treats you based on your identity. That's why sin is different for the Christian than it is for the non-Christian. The non-Christian, God is having to treat that person based on their identity because they're a son of wrath, right? They, they don't know him. They are eternally separated from him. But now that we are born again, God's going to begin treating us differently. He treats us like a son and a daughter, not on our history, because our history has been what? It's been changed. It's no longer applicable anymore. That's why when you log on to Ancestry.com, it's just one line in God. There's no like grandma and grandpa biologically, because all that, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying they're not still grandma and grandpa, but from a practical standpoint, from an identity standpoint, it's irrelevant now. It has to be irrelevant because if it was still relevant, that means sin would still be coming. 
but it's been cut off. You've been changed. I've been changed. We are brand new people. And it is incredible. Aren't you glad that God doesn't treat you based on your history, but your identity? That's why Paul talks about and defines love in 1 Corinthians 13. He says that we can love. How can we love? Because God has first loved us. Now we can love others in the same way he's loved us because we can't do it on our own. It's God's love inside of us. That's why one of the aspects of love is love keeps no record of wrongs. Ooh, boy. That's something we do, doesn't it? We all like the man, love keeps no record of wrongs. Aren't you glad that God keeps no record of wrongs on you? He is so good. The truth is, you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity. So think of these thoughts. Birth determines identity. You don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity. You receive your identity when you were conceived in your mother's womb. You receive that identity as a sinner. The moment you were born again, you received a new identity. You didn't achieve your identity. That's why I mentioned earlier, while we, while we need to start with first identity, intimacy, inheritance, and destiny, rather than flipping it on its side and talk about destiny first. Because if you talk about what we're supposed to do, then we get in this achievement mindset that I'm going to start earning favor with God. I'm going to make God like me more by how much I do for him. And that has nothing to do with how God feels about you or feels about me. The truth is I love my children, not based on anything that they've done. I love them. There's nothing they could do that would cause me to love them any less. They're my kids. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. You love your, I love my children, not based on anything they've done, but just because they're my kids. And how many of you have kids sometimes that have done things that, that are hurtful, that are disappointing, that are painful? Does it change, does it change your love for them? Not at all, because they're not doing anything to achieve your love. They're receiving your love based on their identity. Now, the great news is that's actually how God looks at us. Now, think about it this way. So then sin, for you and me, who is born again, who we are born again, then what sin means for you and what sin means for me is when I choose to get my contentment and my significance and my security in anything other than God. That's sin. Sin disrupts intimacy. It doesn't disrupt identity. Get it? This is really important, right? We can still choose to sin which this is not the sin that sends us to hell. This is the sin that says, Lord, I know you're not, but I'm still going to go out here and do a little this over here, right, to get my needs met over here. And then what happens is it doesn't change my identity. It doesn't change how God feels about me, but it will change my intimacy level with him. It's possible to be married without intimacy. It's possible to be married with intimacy. If you're married you could disrupt the intimacy in your marriage by doing things you shouldn't do, by finding your contentment and significance in other people than your wife or husband. That's going to do what? That's going to disrupt intimacy, isn't it? But it doesn't disrupt the identity of being, of being married. You see the difference? So that's why sin can be catastrophic for us relationally, but it doesn't have anything to do with our identity because you, since you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity. So think of it this way. We're going to have some questions in a second. So then 
I want to ask us a question. Knowing everything that I've said so far, we begin to ask ourselves this question, what is discipleship then? What is this? If you've been in church long enough, you've heard the word, haven't you? Discipleship. When I first heard discipleship, it was in the context of a class I need to take or a book I need to read or a course I need to read. Or a discipleship 101 or 102, we have all these little paradigms and models in church, you know. And, and we actually think discipleship is more of an educational process than it is a transformation process. Discipleship, and this is what I, I've come to believe, this is what discipleship, I believe, really is. Discipleship is being reparented by your heavenly Father into the reality of his love being shed in our hearts and in a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So if we are born again, we get a brand new father, and no matter how good our earthly father was or how bad they were, they still missed out. They weren't still a great father. You could have had the best father in, in the world, but he still was insufficient to parent you like your new heavenly father is. So the whole process of discipleship is your new heavenly father is now going to reparent you and reparent me. We are being parented by him. That's why the image of saying now we can call God, not just God the father, but we can call him Abba, right? Which is daddy. You don't see many 40-year-olds walking around telling their dad, call him daddy. It's just because it's more of a younger child. You do, it's not bad, but it isn't as common. Daddy implies you're a small child and you're talking to your dad. Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. So there's this thought process then that we need to make sure we are becoming like a little child. Why? Because we've been born again. Yes, that means if I'm born again, I'm a child again. That means I need to be reparented. So who's going to reparent me? My loving Heavenly Father. And He's going to do it through many different means. It's okay to take a discipleship course, but, know what's, but know, at least know what's happening. It's not the acquisition of information. It's about the revelation of now we're being reparented by Him. So we can grow up in Him to a full stature. Are we getting this? And so here's what, here's what, so what I'm sharing with you, and I might be the only ignorant person on the planet, but I'll be honest with you, I, I had almost no revelation on any of this stuff six or seven years ago. I mean, I could have, now I, I could have given you the information about it. I could have written a book on it, but I have very little revelation on it. And it wasn't until God brought me to a crisis moment in my, in my own life. It was, in, it was in October of 2014. We were on vacation. We were on vacation. And I remember the moment specifically. We were actually taking a cruise, a uh, family cruise we had saved up for. And I would um, get up in the morning on the cruise, it was a, a seven-day cruise, so I would get up, go to the gym, come down to the deck. You know, there's, like, there's you know, nobody out because everybody was drunk for the night before, so the whole deck was clean of people, you know. So you're just sitting there all by yourself, the ocean, got your cup of coffee, got your Bible. And I just remember thinking on, the, on, that very first, on that very first day, I woke up and I was sitting and I said, Lord, I just, I need you to speak to me. So I just like, you know, like any good Bible student, Lord, speak to me, just kind of Bible roulette, you know. Speak, 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 speak. So I just like opened up the, I just opened up the Bible and it, and it, and it fell to, to John chapter six. And this is how it all came for me. 
And I started reading John chapter 6, and that's the, um, the um, I am chapter. And so I'm just kind of going through it, and, and there's this verse around, I think, verse 23 or 24. It says, and the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked him, what shall we do to do the works of God? And I just, like, stopped reading right there. And I said, yes, Lord, that's a, that is where I'm at. Or what do you want me to do, God? Because I'd, I'd kind of reached a place in my life, you know, it wasn't bad, wasn't great. It was just like there was something missing. There was a hole in my heart somewhere. I said, God, what do you want me to do? I will do whatever you want me to do. I'll, whatever you want me to do, God, I'll do it. Because that's the question. What do you want me to do so I can do the works of God? And then my eyes fell back to that verse. What shall we do to do the works of God? And Jesus replied, believe in the one whom the Father had sent. That was the response of Jesus. Now, I'd probably read John chapter 6 and, you know, 30 years of following Jesus, probably many, 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 many times. But in that moment, a spirit of wisdom and revelation hit that verse, and I saw something. I, I was asking a doing question, and Jesus responded with a being answer. Remember, they said, what shall we do to do the works of God? Jesus said, believe in the one the Father had sent. And I, when I saw that, it, it, was, it was like, you know, Miley Cyrus came in with a wrecking ball. I mean, it just came. <laughs> I mean, literally, a wrecking ball just, just hit me, just like, hit me just like that. I said, oh, my gosh. And something changed inside of me at that moment. I mean, it was something fundamental change because then that one little verse became for me a Rosetta Stone where I, where I was able to evaluate my entire Christian life leading up to that point, realizing, Lord, I've lived my entire Christian life more oriented to doing than believing and being. You see what I said earlier? Many of us, I'm convinced many of us are not unlike me, in 2014, we've lived a majority of our Christian life primarily focusing on our destiny and what does God want us to do. And we get so wrapped up and we get so concerned. I mean, are we doing the wrong thing or the you know, right thing? We're praying about this. And God's like, it, really, that's not what it's about. It's about believing in whom the one that fought, believing in Jesus, believing in who he is. If we believe in who he is, we're going to believe in who he says that I am. And it begins to change everything. Because I had no grid for what it meant to be, to be um, a son. Really, to, to be a son. I was the elder brother in the prodigal son story. I was the guy that never ran off and did anything wrong. But I was also the guy who didn't understand who I was living in the house. Amy pointed this out the other week. It was, just, it was, just, it was so powerful. That here's this elder, the elder brother was so irritated with the father when the prodigal son, remember the story? Came back home, the fatted calf and all that. And remember the elder brother walked in and said, Dad, I don't understand. You've, like, you've never done this for me. You've never had a party. You never slaughtered the fatted calf for me. And the father in this bewilderment said, everything I have is yours. You could have had the party anytime. It's, it's, it's all yours. But yet this elder brother was living in the house with his father the whole time as a slave and not as a son. How, what a, that's, that's a tragic story, isn't it? That means it's possible, right, to live in the house, to be saved, to do all this stuff and not realize who we are because he didn't realize who he was because if he knew who he was at any given moment, he could have slaughtered a fatted calf and had a big party with his friends. 
He, 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 he could have spent anything he wanted to spend because the father said, it's, all, it's, it's always all been yours. And like me in that moment, that's when God began to take me on the journey of saying, I need you to know who you are. Because if you don't know who you are, you're not going to really be able to do the things I'm going to lead you to do. Because you're getting your identity wrapped up in what you do and not in me. Therefore, in what you do may not be what you think you want to do. And your identity is going to plummet because your identity is all wrapped up in that. Now, I wasn't fixed in that moment, right? But something shifted. Heart posture, right? Something, something began to move in my heart that caused me once again to go back and start reading this thing called the Bible with a new lens. Lord, who am I? And I started reading books and getting stuff and revelation. And I found my whole heart just began to come alive and realizing, oh God, you're really happy with me because of just who I am. Not based on what I do, whether I'm passionate at church or flipping hamburgers, it doesn't matter. You and I are good, we're good. And I'm telling you, guys, I, I, and I now in ministry, I find so often that so many folks are struggling because they're, they're, they're trying to find their identity in what they do. And there's so much dissatisfaction in what they're doing because they're looking for their identity out of it. And it has nothing to do with that. It really doesn't. Our identity is really inside of him. And I'm not there yet. I wish I was there yet, but I can tell you this question of identity, I want to encourage, I want to encourage all of us to don't just make the assumption that you have information that equals revelation. Because I'm telling you, I am case in point of the guy who was saved, serving Jesus, never backslid, speaking in tongues. I was a, I was a Martha with Mary moments, but I was not a Mary with Martha moments. And there's a difference. It's possible to be a Martha with Mary moments, but God wants us to be a Mary with Martha moments because it's ultimately all about knowing him. And I believe if you begin to pray these things, your heart begins to like come alive. And then, and then from a place of identity, once you know that, you're going to crave and you're going to want the intimacy with the Lord. And you're going to be less, less kind of given to getting your needs for security and contentment met and other things because you're not going to do anything to disrupt the intimacy you have with him see identity is the only thing that will carry you into the intimacy with the lord that he desires for us and the only thing that will keep us out of sin truly the, the sin i just defined will be i don't want to mess up this intimacy with the lord that's that's the reason i don't sin not because i'm afraid god's going to spank me that's not the point the reason I choose not to sin now is I don't want to mess up the intimacy because I know when I do choose to sin, I feel this intimacy thing that's broken, right? Not identity, but intimacy. Amen? All right, let's, let's take just a minute. And um, Bob, would you help me? I'm curious. This is, this is kind of, a, kind of a, lot, a lot to take you. Could you be a runner? You're such a healthy dude. I'm going to turn this, turn this mic on. And any... Um, questions or comments around the subject hit, 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 hit a lot of stuff so just just take a, just take a minute if there's none well praise god y'all got it all figured out i have a whole list of questions i'll ask you 
Any questions, comments, maybe even like a short testimony even, that's totally acceptable too as it relates to these, these truths. I had a coworker tell me that um, another coworker who's gay, it's a gay lifestyle. Yes. Um, said she thought she would go to hell because she was gay. Yes. And um, that she wasn't sure if Jesus was really the son of God, you know. And so she was kind of exploring that with her. My, my coworker that was telling me this is a Christian, a believer. And um, I just wonder what, in terms of the discussion about identity, mm -hmm. um, if that ever, if I ever get the opportunity to talk with her about that, because I know that's something she struggles with. Um, you know, how do I, you know, Engage address that. that with, yeah, with her um, in terms of the identity versus. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, okay, so. Yes, that's a very good point. So I, I said earlier, I, one of the challenges is that we have, I'll say it this way, all right, we've gotten people saved without repentance. We've gotten people saved without repentance. And that has produced a lot of problems, a lot of complexities. It just has, because there's something in us that doesn't want to offend people. Jesus offended people all the time. He was strong in what he believed. He just did. But I, it's like boxing. It's the one-two punch. It's grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth, right? We got to give people both grace and truth. I love you, right? But if you want to come to Jesus, you're going to have to repent of your old lifestyle, I don't care if it's homosexuality, alcoholism, drugs. You need to repent of all that mess. And then trust Then, as you come to Jesus, he's going to help make you more than an overcomer walking out of it. It doesn't mean the fish is a, is a, a fillet of, um, immediately. You, you have to catch the fish before. You, you don't fillet the fish before you catch it. You catch the fish, and then you fillet the fish. So we're not going to fillet the fish before we catch them. But people have got to repent. And there's no way to come to Jesus Unless we get the bad news that what I'm doing is wrong. But the homosexual issue is a little bit harder culturally because of the culture. 25 years ago, it was a much easier conversation. Now it's a much more complicated conversation because of Hollywood, because of the government, because of the Supreme Court, because of Mayor Pete. I mean, that we could just make the list going on and on, right? It's a very complicated issue. But it doesn't change the truth. You know, people, it's still sin. I mean, you've got to say, hey, it's a sin. But here's how I frame up, like, to make it, this is, this is what works for me. I, I want to be known as a Christian more for what I'm for than for what I'm against. I want to be known for what I'm for than what I'm against. What I will do, talking to people, all these, like, you know, gay and fornicating and bestiality and polygamy. I mean, there's no, like, I mean, that list is really long, right? I say, here, here's the deal. We can talk about that, but let me tell you about what God's for. God's for marriage between a man and a woman. Marriage, sex within the context of marriage. That's God's definition of relationship. Therefore, if I'm for this, then I am against this, 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 and this. So it helps me when I'm talking to somebody that has a particular struggle like homosexuality where I don't single that one specific thing out. I put that in a long list of everything else. 
right? I'm for this. I'm against this. Therefore, if you want to come to Jesus, you've got to repent of all that. Not just that, but this and that and this and that. You've got to like turn away from that and step into your new life in Jesus and experience deliverance. The problem with people getting saved without repentance, we have sanctioned and normalized stumbling as a normal part of Christian behavior. We have. We just accept the stumbling. When clearly John 16, 1 says that Jesus, I have spoken these things that you may not stumble. June 24 says God gives us the grace and to, to, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Right. So yeah, we can't, we can't candy coat it, but we can say it in love. But love is painful. It's good. Good to help. Because that's a big one. Anything else? Questions? Got a little more time. Come on, get some controversy. I'll go back to the room. We need some, we need some controversial questions. Bob's getting his exercise. I was going to ask if you could expand on what you said about what you do versus your identity in God. Yeah, what you do. Yeah, that's such a, that's a big, that's The reason a, I'm asking, I'm sorry, is because uh, sometimes you kind of battle internally with whether you should make a change. Mm-hmm. So how do you determine whether yeah, yeah. you're in idolatry over, like, say, your occupation or your job or yes. you know, maybe putting your identity in something other than God and seeking yeah. peace in that? Like, how do you, Yeah. I don't know, I just wanted you to expand on it. Yes. So, simply for me, and I know it's so simple, but... Every time we encounter Jesus, he simplifies everything. Jesus is the great simplifier and the great uncomplicator. That's why our natural mind is adversarial. We think of our problems as algebra that's going to be solved by calculus. But that's not how Jesus does it. Jesus comes in and says, oh, no, let's get down to just, you know, fingers and toes. <laughs> let's count it. It's counting. It's so simple. So it really starts with this simple revelation that says this, God didn't make us to do something. God made us to be something. God didn't make, I can't think for one moment that God created me to get something done. That's not why he made us. Because, I mean, he's God. He's the creator of the universe. His words spoke the universe into existence. He made the Andromeda galaxy. He formed dioxyribonucleic acid. He created protein chains and the building blocks of life. He created all of it. And, and we, we really deceive ourselves to think he really made me to do something. He didn't. And how you know that is in the temporary. Everything temporal goes away. What's the eternal state going to be? When it's all said and done. When Jesus comes back, the kingdoms of this world, because the kingdoms of the world, I mean, it's, it's not going to get something done. It's going to be his, his bride, his bride. I know it seems really elementary to talk like that, but I'm not kidding you. I promise you, this single revelation will change your life in ways you cannot imagine. When I really believe that God didn't make me to do something, he just made me for himself. That's why he made me. And I promise you, though, what happens is that does not perpetuate laziness. It actually perpetuates working really hard for him. Because faith without works is dead, right? That true faith 
is going to call us to greater works because there, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for we've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. So no one should boast because there are predestined good works from the beginning of time that he has got a plan for us to do. So the work then becomes the byproduct and knowing him is the product. I think the problem is we flip the two things. We think it's about the doing more than it is about the being. Therefore, here's what that means to me. I just don't think God is concerned about what we do as much as we think he's concerned about what we do. I don't think God is set up in heaven, biting his nails, fretting because I'm not doing something that I should be doing. I think he's more concerned that I don't know him at the level that he wants to know me. Whether, truthfully, when you walk in this revelation, it doesn't matter where you are sometimes. God's going to use you wherever you are. God can move you around wherever he wants you. And it's hard because we're a people who like to get our identity wrapped up in what we do because we're so performance-driven. And it's true, man. It just says, no, don't look to that because it'll always leave you bankrupt. If you know this, you know that, right? When things are good at work, it's like you're on emotional, you're, everything is great. It's wonderful, right? You're, you're riding high. Wednesday comes around, your boss just got fired, they replaced him with a real jerk, and all of a sudden, while well, it went from high on Monday, now you're at the bottom of the barrel because now this guy's on you like white on rice, just, right? And we're just jerked all around because our identity and our emotional ability is all rooted in what we're doing and not who we are. It really is true. Jesus was able to endure the cross because of who he is. He didn't do anything they didn't see the Father doing. I mean, there was this, there was this relationship that he had. I'll give you one more illustration. That never define the dream of God for your life. God will give you a dream. God will give you a dream. But don't define the dream. Live the dream. Never live the definition. Live the dream. Because what happens is God will give us a dream. And then we look at it, and then we begin to define the dream. Let me give you this example. Abstract art. You know what abstract art looks like? You know, it's like you can see it like a, like a piece of abstract art, and you can tell it's a tree. You can clearly, it's a tree, but you don't know what kind of tree it is, but you know it's a tree. You don't know whether it's a deciduous tree or an evergreen tree or a palm tree or a mangrove or, you know, it's a tree, but you don't know what it is. What we tend to do is we tend to look at the tree and we begin to define what it is. Oh, I think that's an evergreen. And then this is an evergreen tree. Oh, evergreen trees grow up in North Carolina. So this tree's in North Carolina. Oh, uh, it's, it's a Fraser fir, I can tell. Da, da, da. And, and we start writing this elaborate definition based on the dream God gives us. Then we wrap our expectations and our plans around the definition and not the dream anymore. And then we have set ourselves up for all kind of discouragement and disappointment. Because God himself wants to show us, like Abram, he wants to show us the land rather than us figure it out for ourselves. Jesus said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it's not in your heart, things that God has prepared for you, therefore never write the definition. I've told you, I would have passed a polygraph test 20 years ago, what I'd be doing right now. On the banks, Amazon River, unreached people group, learning the language, got my laptop computer under the mosquito net. That's what I'd be doing. I was convinced I would have passed every test that's what my wife and I were getting ready to do. Clearly, that's not what I'm doing. Because <laughs> God had a different plan. But every time our life journey began to go away from what I had defined, there was an associated disappointment, discouragement, disappointment, despair. Because I was fixated on the definition and not the dream. 
Live the dream because then you live with the dream giver. If I live the definition, I got to live with the definition giver, which is me. You see? I know it's a really cryptic answer, but, but it really does begin by saying, God, all my fulfillment's in you. Whether I'm in a cardboard box under a bridge or whether I'm in, a, in the uh, Ritz-Carlton, God, you're good, you know? You're good and you're going to lead me. Doesn't advocate laziness. You work hard, you do what God's called you to do, but you trust him with everything. Your, your identity gets wrapped up in him. It's good though. Anything else? Keep going. It's good. Vanessa. As you, as you mentioned earlier, we tend to forget our identity. Do you have any practical ways of remembering during the week or who you are? Yeah. Yeah, so personally, for me, I have to make a connection in the morning with God. It was, I, have to, I have to reorient myself with God in the morning. Because when I wake up in the morning, you know, six, seven hours sleep, I've forgotten. By the time I get up, who am I again? Have you had those moments when you sort of wake up in the morning and like something bad's going on in your life, and you had that early moment when you've forgotten what bad's going on? And you have that peace, and then all of a sudden you remember, oh, no, my car is totaled. It's at the mechanic. I got to deal with that. But there's that, like, little moment that you don't, you, you've, like, forgotten that. And you're like, it's so peaceful. You're waking up, and all of a sudden this memory just crashes into your brain of something bad that's going on. It's, oh, no, right? Well, then use that to your advantage. Use that same thought process to remember who you are in, in God. And for me, it's just a matter of, Lord, I am your son today. Lord, I give my life to you. I reorient my heart to you right now. That is, it doesn't mean you got to get up and pray for two hours and read the book of Deuteronomy. Maybe, but, but just reorienting your life every morning to Jesus is, I think, the secret to the whole thing. The next thing is don't let the sun go down in your anger. Evaluate your Christian life in the context of a 24-hour day. We start skipping a few days, we start getting dull, and we start forgetting. We've got to remind ourselves. But that's how I do it. Just every day I remind myself, Lord, this is who I am in you. Who I am in you. Anything else? Anybody else? Good stuff. Gosh, I thought somebody was going to ask about once saved, always saved, and all those great questions. Or who's going to be president or whatever. Are we good? All right. So my final challenge for us, and we'll pray and be done. Really, really pray Ephesians 1, 16, 17. Ask God to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Ask God to, to open up the eyes of your heart to see these things. Begin to question, all right? Begin to doubt and question, I mean, in, in a good way, how much revelation you actually have on the information that you've received. And you'll probably find, like me, I said, oh my goodness, Lord, I think I missed, I think I missed some things. And, let the, and, I, and your heart will come alive as your, identity, as your identity gets understood by who you are. And it will facilitate greater intimacy with him, which causes you to access this great inheritance that you have in Jesus. And who knows, you may live to be 102 years old with bright blue eyes. And your energy not abated, your eyes never dimmed. Because he really helped me to understand that. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the good time we can have. And Lord, just getting around your word and just to be challenged. Father, 
we know so little. Lord, we want to be teachable. We want to be humble. We want to be willing to allow you to be the potter and us be the clay. Lord, we want to stay on the wheel. We want to stay on the potter's wheel and not ever get off thinking we have it all figured out or we have the T's crossed and I's dotted. Father, we want to stay right there and allow your fingerprints to mold us and make us after your way. Jesus, we are amazed by you. We're amazed, God, by your powerful word. Lord, we feel so um, inhibited at times, God, by our earthly body, these, these earthen vessels that we're in. But yet, Lord, you put a treasure inside these earthen vessels. You've put the Holy Spirit, you've put him inside of us. And we have access in him all the time. Lord, to call upon you, to allow the deep things inside of us to access the deep things in you, God. The unsearchable riches of knowing you. Father, we don't want to get to heaven one day just having just been just been barely saved. God, we, Lord, we, we want to walk we want to walk into heaven one day, walk into your presence and have the gold and the silver and bronze to put at your feet. And that's not going to be the, necessarily be the things that we've done for you. It's going to be the revelation that you revealed to us as the true gold, the true silver and the true bronze that will last forever and ever and ever, Father. So Lord, open our eyes like the sign as the Song says, or open our eyes that we can see you. Open our ears that we can hear you. I pray, Joel, too, over us, God. Give us dreams. Give us dreams in the night, Lord. God, you said that we would dream dreams. We would see visions. Men and women alike, Lord, speak to our own hearts. Give us the gift of hunger like we, like we never have. Lord, but thank you that, Lord, in so many ways, you do meet us where we are. You don't, you don't expect perfection, Lord. You said that just faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. God, you can, you can take our little loaves and fishes, those things that we just kind of come up with. You, know, you can take what we bring and you can multiply it, Lord. And so thank you, God, for grace. Thank you for amazing, amazing grace. So let us continue to walk in the revelation that says, Lord, you didn't just make us to do something. You made us for your pleasure that we might know you. And that, Lord, once that revelation comes, we will echo the words of Paul that says, Lord, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection and even the fellowship of your sufferings, God. Lord, if it enables me to know you better. We love you. We magnify you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Praise God. Let's do it again next week.